and welcome to Workforce, a podcast where we uncover the science and behaviours behind things that happen in the workplace that impact your success, blending academic evidence and real life experiences. I'm Dr. Grace Lorden, author of Think Big, Take Small Steps and Build the Future You Want. Today, I want to talk to you about wages, specifically who gets paid the highest wages and what the precursors are to earning big money. Cognitive ability is not predictive anymore in the top wage percentiles. I think companies are oblivious and just needing to start reporting pay disparities. It can have quite a profound impact on mental health and knowing if you aren't well connected enough, you're probably not going to go through the ranks as quickly as your peers. It is really damaging. Is it all about talent and skill? We can probably predict there's a little bit more to it than that. Before we meet the first of today's guests, though, let's say hello to Teresa Amida, an amazing behavioural scientist from the London School of Economics. Hi, Teresa. What has amazed me from my own research is just how convinced many people are that workers are rewarded in line with the meritocracy, when in fact they are not. Very often why people get rewarded has less to do with competence and more to do with confidence. Those making decisions often reward their friends and ignore the contributions of those with diverse perspectives. This is bad news for diverse talent and possibly explains at least some of the gender and ethnicity gaps we know exist. What do you think? And why are you paid so much? (laughs) So I'm really interested in learning about the fact that data from both the UK and the US shows that the top 1% of earners earn about 14% of all wages. And this is twice as high as it was in the 1980s. So is the idea of the meritocracy, is the idea of the meritocracy something that we've just got from the past and is no longer relevant? I'm also interested in the idea that past a certain threshold, is there always an element of luck that society uh, can bring that we're not keen to talk about? The network advantages, the family backgrounds, and the exposures to occupations that are very high wage that are more likely to lead to being paid too much or so much. And also asking. I think people just asking for more money, are, they're much more likely to get higher wages as compared to those that don't ask. And of course, the ask gap is well known in, in the mm. research, but it's not correlated with merit either. That's very interesting. And then on the why am I paid so much? I don't think I'm paid that much. (laughs) I think academia is one of the probably the worst returns on cognitive investment. You know, the PhD level, I think, is the first level in which you don't get paid a return based on what you did. So if I wanted to get paid that much, I probably should have stopped at a master's. Okay, so Teresa and I aren't convinced that there is a meritocracy and we are also calling for higher wages in universities. On this podcast, I do like to talk to researchers who are at the bleeding edge of the topic under consideration. And for this, I went to speak to Michael Bohm, a professor of empirical economics at TU Dormant. I wanted to chat to Michael about a study he did that looked at the financial sector, looking at the ecosystem of individual firms. Wages in the financial sector have increased tremendously in the US, Britain and Sweden. And the research asks whether the increases in wages are indicative of talent and skills of the workers. Or are there some other factors on play that are causing a brain drain from other sectors? Let's hear from Michael. We have some evidence and I can tell you a little bit about the evidence and we can try try to think about uh, what maybe are reasonable numbers. So uh, on these kind of talent measures, they themselves um, in uh, the Swedish economy, they explain like 10, perhaps together 15% of the variation in wages uh, between individuals. And that's the same actually within the financial sector and outside the financial sector. So the returns to talent are not even in, in, in level terms, in the cross-section, they are not, not 
not clearly higher in the financial sector than they are in the rest of the economy, actually. That's, that's, that's something to note. Um, uh, and as I said, it's like 10 to 15% of the variation, statistically highly significant because, uh, you know, they do explain even conditional and other stuff, but it doesn't explain the majority of wages. Then if you include other factors that are skill related, like uh, people's level of education, uh, if you include their experience in the labor market, um, if you include some other socio-demographic factors, I don't know if you should, um, I mean, you know, gender and, 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 and these kind of uh, things. So that, 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 that is a difficult question to answer. Um, um, maybe it's more, you know, I, I, I wouldn't want to call it a skill. I'm just saying if you include kind of observable characteristics, then, then you are usually in the US, in, in, in European countries, including, uh, you know, Sweden, you're usually at like a third of the variation. Uh, in wages that people earn uh, in the cross-section. On the other hand, people have recently found that, uh, you know, firms, even independent, you know, in, even independent of people's skills, firm variation, um, uh, you know, different firms paying more than, than and less, um, and people sorting into those firms, um, that can explain maybe 20, 25% of wages. And, you know, that might to some extent be a luck component. Then we're still left with 50% where we, uh, where we don't, uh, don't exactly know. Um, um, you know, there's different statistical techniques to, to try to explain more, but they are harder to interpret. Um, so there is a kind of a, a whole interval of wage kind of variation where we don't, certainly no don't for sure know whether this is kind of skill or or luck based and we should say also the skill measures you know they depend on potentially they depend on some early luck in life and and, and these kind of things right and you know something that your work and work of others has convinced me if you want high wages you you, you should pick your sector correctly independent of everything else that, that you have going on for you the sector really matters so it would give you opportunities to have higher wages regardless of of your skill levels would you would you agree with that it's pretty clear there are high earning sectors and there are low earning sectors and we know them anecdotally right so uh, if you go into the arts uh, it's, it's it's just harder than if you go into the car industry in my country and into the financial sector if you're in uh, you know in the south of england um and, uh, and 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 that's a reality and even conditional on all your ability on your motivation uh, your kind of uh, persistence grit and uh, other kind of characteristics uh, that that makes it substantial difference for earnings and i would argue it makes actually the sector makes probably more of a difference than the particular firm because you know within a sector you can switch and you will you will move across firms and that's why i think our study is actually you know i mean i think it's actually quite interesting because we did aggregate it to the sector level and we found that workers once they are in the financial sector they they are, they are in they stay in the financial sector they earn a lot they switch firms within the financial sector but they don't really uh, go out and on the other hand if in the beginning of your career you don't enter the financial sector, uh, then uh, then uh, then it's pretty hard, or at least statistically, you don't see people entering later in life into the financial sector. So, if you take younger people, is it that they don't know about these kind of high salary premiums that you've been discussing, or is it that they are more interested in pursuing, as you've already said, their passions and that income is is actually secondary to them? So, why don't we see more young people entering entering finance? I can't definitely answer that. We looked into it. Uh, we did two things. Um, one is the earnings profile over the life cycle. 
um, uh, uh, of workers uh, entering the financial sector. And that was something that people that actually, um, the people that, that were, you know, you know, kind of acquaintances and friends of mine who are investment bankers in London and in other places uh, told me the, the kind of the big financial rewards, they don't come at the beginning of the career. They become like after like you have about five, 10 years experience and uh, and you need to stick into the in the sector. You need to kind of, uh, you know, you need to work very hard for the first couple of years. And then at some point, kind of the, 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 the pay increases are just huge. And that's what we found in the Swedish data. So we, 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 the nice thing about the Swedish data is also that we have every type of earning that the person files for taxes. Swedish state is, is, is a very you know, high capability state, is able to basically measure all these things, and it's very hard to kind of circumvent them. And, uh, and, uh, and life cycle profiles are such that people, after like 10 years in the sector, they really make the big money. So one possibility is that young people at the entrance salary, which are already substantially higher than in other sectors, um, don't see such a large differential uh, as compared to what their lifetime income differences would be. So in some sense, um, they might uh, not perceive these differences to be as large as they actually are. And the other one is, and that's related, is your social circle, your family, the environment where you grew up with. So we basically looked at people's parents on the one hand, so whether they worked in the sector or whether they didn't. And uh, if your parents work in the financial sector, you're substantially more likely to, to also work in the financial sector. That's something that you have in other professions too. But that correlation is stronger for that sector. And uh, the other thing is, that if you work in an environment where there are other, like, sorry, if you grow up in an environment, like in a location, we have detailed location data where people are when they are like in their teens, um, in an environment where there are more financial sector workers, you, even conditional other stuff, you're substantially more likely to, 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 to be in the financial sector later when you are in, in you know, when, when you are in the, in the workplace. And that might be, um, you know, giving you information about how attractive the sector is. It might be an entry ticket because uh, you might uh, have social connections that, that help you enter the sector. Um, and it might also, to some extent, also change your preferences. So that, that's a bit hard to disentangle from our study. But it is a clear correlation and it's stronger than for other sectors. So based on what Michael is saying, it's safe to say that being talented doesn't give you a fast track to a fat wallet. There are some elements of a meritocracy, but Michael's research is clear that what a person is paid is also down to a great deal of luck and also the sector that they choose. I also spoke to Mark Koishnig, a professor of sociology at Leipzig University who looked at a similar question in an entirely different context. Mark used a US Army data on cognitive abilities, spatial abilities, verbalizing and logical attainment to look at the correlation between cognitive ability and wages. The study focused on how clever the top earners are and whether the top positions in society are indeed held by these clever people. Mark found that education was a key to success. So does this mean that the brainier you are, the more you'll actually earn? My confirmation bias is going to into overdrive as I suspect it's not quite as black and white as that. Let's find out. With this data, we can check how brainy the 1% is. And as it turns out, they are quite brainy. Yeah, they are far more clever than the rest of the population. But among the top earners, we see huge differences in wage. And these differences we see there cannot be explained by differences in cognitive ability, meaning that 
cognitive ability is not predictive anymore in the top weight percentiles. There are many studies looking at this disconnect, right? And they are traditionally informed by human capital theory. So they ask how predictive IQ, some measure of IQ is for earnings, right? How does IQ relate to the income people make? And they typically find a very strong association between the two factors. But we switch, yeah, we swap the axes and we ask how smart are the top earners? Yeah. So we can zoom in on the top income percentiles and ask very different questions, not related to human capital, but related to questions of meritocracy, right? If you observe a lot of plateauing, right? Uh, uh, a range in your um, income distribution that is not positively linked to cognitive ability anymore. You do also um, observe, yeah, uh, these are traces of social exclusion. Could be interpreted as social exclusion, meaning that uh, it takes luck to arrive at society's top position. It takes family connections to arrive there and all sorts of um, benefits that you have from a prestigious upbringing, right? So if we look at the same data and slice it in two ways, so we only look at those who come from a low uh, socioeconomic status family and those who come from a top as SES family, then uh, we see the plateauing only for those who come from the prestigious families. So for those who come from families with lower uh, socioeconomic status, uh, we don't see the plateauing, meaning that even in the top income range, um, income is very strongly connected to cognitive ability. Or in other words, people who come from underprivileged families and do make it to top positions, they have to be really smart. And Mark, when I think about prestige jobs, where does academia land on that? Is that a high prestige job? Because I guess I'm thinking about where do intelligent people end up where they're lowly paid as compared to you know other occupations? I think academia is, is one sector where you get a lot of people who are curious, they're creating value, but they're probably not paid as much as people in other sectors. Yeah, this is a good question. So academics are high in prestige, but of course there are other occupations that are even higher. Uh, and, and in the standard prestige scales that we in sociology use, um, occupations such as medical doctors and lawyers and judges, they have higher prestige than university employees and, and scientists. So if we look at academics, we don't find a plateauing. So clearly the smartest are the highest earning people in academia. But we do find, and this is, I mean, these are preliminary results. Yeah? Take them with a grain of salt. Yeah. We do find a lot of plateauing for managers. So the highest paying managers are not the smartest ones. And there are smarter managers on the income ranks below. Across the wage spectrum, we do see a very tight connect of wages to cognitive ability. It's just among the top 10 earners where 
this connect loosens up. And, um, and for those earners, I mean, they earn terribly high incomes. And there one could say that meritocratic principles are not at their best, right? That, and we see, do see this from other research, right? Uh, research, for example, qualitative research that uh, takes part in hiring committees in top law firms, for example. And then they typically find that people are selected based on homophily, right? I mean, all applicants are brilliant. Yeah. And then I hire those who, who are more similar to me, who I enjoy being around, who can take part in fancy dinners and these sorts of things. And this uh, um, is a mechanism of social exclusion, of course. And our findings, I think, are very much in line with these qualitative findings from other research. So Mark found that 1% of the highest earners of the population and the brainiest don't really overlap at all. So once again, cognitive ability is not a good indicator of top wage earners. It's also probably more accurate to say brainy people can earn a lot of money, but essentially if you're from a low socioeconomic background, you have to be the smartest to achieve a top position. And most of it will be luck anyway. I want to know what all of this means for diverse talent. To get more information, I chatted with Shiraz Kushner. Shiraz, along with his day job at Sky, runs People Like Us, a free service to support journalists, professionals and marketers from racially diverse backgrounds. People Like Us helps demystify unwritten rules and create networks. It also helps a person negotiate better pay from their employers. There is a big gender and race pay disparity in PR costing women and non-white colleagues about seven to eight thousand pounds per year. And this does not include the impact on pensions. Shiraz talked me through the big barriers to a meritocracy in the PR industry. Let's hear what he had to say. I suppose our industry, um, the main challenges we have, so I speak to professionals at absolutely all levels pretty much daily. And PR does a great job in bringing in staff, uh, particularly over the last five to ten years, at the most junior levels. And I suppose what happens is there seems to be a progressional glass ceiling. And I suppose a big barrier is really unclear routes to progression, particularly at the most senior levels. People just aren't clear or being able to clear the account director and associate director levels. And people have shown me confidentially their objectives. And it's just really arbitrary and vague. And getting to the next stage just doesn't seem to be that attainable. So there's a big job to be done in terms of communication on, on how to get promoted or a pay rise. Um, I think a big factor in what we're going to talk about today is um, transparency. Um, almost every job I've seen out there does not share a salary band. Um, and to be honest, the only personnel damage is the person applying for the role. And I think steps need to be taken to for employers to be much more transparent, even having a wide salary band, so at least people know roughly what they're getting into. Um, and I know that's being spoke about in Parliament at the moment about how can we make pay fairer. And I think that's a really simple step people can take. Um, I suppose a really simple barrier, particularly in the PR industry, um, I can speak from experience, is nepotism. Um, there seems to be very similar circles of people doing the rounds and uh, kind of doing the rounds between the top agencies and the top brands. And often other people are overlooked. I think historically the comms industry in the UK has been really underrepresented. It is uh, a middle class, um, predominantly dominated by people from middle class backgrounds. And often people pick what they know. And if you're in that position, 
it's kind of an easy thing to do because it's a known quantity. Um, so that's a big challenge. I think companies are oblivious and just needing to start reporting pay disparities. And I think the, the Equality Act in 2017 has been taking big steps for, for addressing inequalities for gender. Uh, and now we must do the same for ethnicity. Initially, the government were due to either produce some guidelines or, in fact, legislation around 2020. But the the reasoning they provided was um, it will take businesses too much time. It'll add too much pressure on them during the pandemic where they're already kind of reeling. Um, and they also provided uh, a reason that GDPR will make it complicated around how you collect data. And I suppose as time has gone on, it's, it's come to light. It's actually very straightforward to report to get the numbers um, and GDPR is, is simple enough to, to let employees know we're collecting data for this very reason is to find out where the pay disparities are uh, in this organization and what we're going to use it for essentially to address these disparities. I wanted to know what Shiraz thinks can be done to rectify these pay disparities. It is 2023 and people should be paid the same for the same type of work. There shouldn't be such large pay penalties. Two weeks ago, the government released uh, guidelines for companies that voluntarily want to reveal their um, ethnicity pay gap data. Um, and that that pretty much takes the learnings and methodology from the gender pay gap, which some people might find useful. And, and there's also guidance on where it might be tricky. For example, if you don't have a huge amount of representation, how to group ethnic groups together and to get a meaningful response. So you can start addressing those disparities um, but there's, there's so many great resources online. There's a free toolkit on the People Like Us website with really simple step-by-step instructions. And I think our methodology um, took learnings from the gender pay gap guidelines given by the government. But I suppose what it does, it allows you to see disparities at each level. And you can extend this to so many other marginalized communities like the LGBT community or people that have disabilities. Can you say something about how you would like this reported by ethnicity? So I know uh, when Boris Johnson was prime minister, he came out and said that we shouldn't be using the BAME aggregation um, anymore. And ideally we would would be disaggregating with that and and choosing categories that actually made sense to individuals themselves. So for your toolkit, what way would you like it to be reported in an ideal world? It's a combination really. So it really depends on how diverse and how big an organisation is. So the government guidelines for gender and in future ethnicity pay gap is companies above 250 plus employees. Um, and I think that way you can have a more representative like number and, and sort of crunch data in a useful, meaningful way. So the toolkit we created for the PR industry where company sizes are significantly smaller means you can have the option of either combining all of them. But I, I do agree in some ways that combining all ethnicities may not be helpful, for, but I would argue that businesses of those sizes, I think some clear patterns will emerge and it's really important to be transparent, um, to have some degree of transparency so you can see where the disparities are. So it really depends if you have a massive organisation with thousands of employees, then you can start to separate um, by ethnic groups. Um, and again, this, this guidelines, the guidelines are provided on the government website about how to define and group ethnic groups. Um, particularly when you're surveying staff to find out their ethnic backgrounds. Michael, Mark, Shiraz all agree that when it comes to professional work, the idea of a meritocracy is currently a myth. Those who are paid the most probably don't deserve it. Teresa, let's imagine you can be director of HR for the day 
how would you change how people are paid to make things fairer? I love the power you're giving me. It's amazing. <laughs> I wish you had the power. <laughs> so something I love from Mark's paper was that there's a line that he says, we find no evidence that those with top jobs that earn wages are more deserving than those who earn half those wages. So when you think about that, it just means that we could half the top earners and then create a more equal top level, which I think is interesting. I think if I was a chair manager for the day, I'd probably make myself CEO as well, because that's where all the decision power comes from. So then I can actually enact my changes. It's, your, your point is, is really interesting. Very often when I've been asked about the, the, the gap between men and women, one of the things that I'll say is that maybe it isn't that women are underpaid. Maybe men are overpaid in some of, in some of the sectors. But of course, loss aversion, taking money away from people is much harder than giving it to people. So I'm not surprised that we focus on making, giving women more pay as opposed to kind of compressing the wages of men down. Hmm. But then I'm not sure we can do that. So you want to pay everyone more? Well, I think this is what this is what we're suffering from in some sectors like finance, what we've heard about on, on, on this podcast. It is the Lake Wobegon effect where everyone thinks they deserve a pay rise. And during a period of growth, everyone got a pay rise. And then as soon as the growth finished and the global financial crisis hit, it was very difficult to claw that back. And you'll see younger generations going into the same sector now saying, why aren't I paid so much? And it's because they just happen to be younger and they don't give them the same lunatic salaries as compared to as compared to in the past so yeah i think that if you look at the dynamics within sectors like finance they are trying to compress wages for new joiners so the gaps between men and women aren't as large as they were in the past if you look at technology recently the layoffs could be accredited to them wanting to actually get rid of people who were paid too much recognizing that they don't add as much value as they're getting paid that's very interesting but don't worry, given where you are, in, 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 given in the university sector, we're not compressing anybody's wages. You'll be pleased to know. I just hope I can get it twice as much now. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. We could only squeeze so much from our guests into the final edit of each episode. So we wanted to make sure you have access to many highlights from our brilliant contributors who have helped us to bring you the second episode. Therefore, there are bonus content for all of today's guests available to watch on my YouTube channel. Please head to the show notes for where to find those or follow me on LinkedIn or Instagram where I will be posting the content. A huge thanks to Michael Baum, Mark Kushnick and Shiraz Gushner for making time to share their thoughts with us and to Teresa Almeida for simply being fabulous. This is the bit where I plead for your support. Please give us a helping hand and get this podcast in front of more listeners by subscribing, rating and reviewing wherever you are listening to us. We'd also love to hear your questions and ideas for future episodes. You can contact me anytime through my website, www.gracelorden.com. I'm Dr. Grace Lorden, and I hope I've earned the privilege of your time. Bye for now.